You might be surprised to know my favorite attribute of God is not his love. Now that might shock you. Just this year I preached a hundred sermons about the love of God. My favorite verse to preach on is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And I'll just tell you, I love the love of God. I love that God is love. I love how great the Father's love is toward us. And I'll just tell you, I, I love his love. I want to preach it. I want to shout it. I want to study it. I want to know more about it. I want to revel in the love of God. But it is not my favorite attribute of God. My favorite attribute of God is his grace. You see, it's only in his grace that a sinner such as I can even catch a glimpse of his love. And I love his love, but it's only in his grace that, that a sinner like I could even have an inkling of a, the truth of his, love, of his grace. The reality is, as God, great as God's love is, we only know it because of his grace. And so I'll just tell you, my favorite attribute of God is his marvelous, matchless magnificent, amazing grace. Well, here's the deal. As fast as I say that, as fast as we hear that this morning, you might start to wonder, well, what actually is God's grace? It is a well-worn word. It's one we say a lot in religious circles. It's one we sing a lot about. But what does it mean for God to be gracious, for God to extend grace to us. What are we talking about when we're talking about the grace of God? Well, today our message is entitled, The Glorious Good News About God's Grace. The Glorious Good News About God's Grace. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Ephesians chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 8. The Glorious Good News About God's grace. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in the first verse, says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 7 again, so that in the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today, we praise you, we worship you, we thank you, we exalt you. Lord, we're thankful for your grace shown to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your love, so tremendous, so great, made available, known to us in your tremendous grace. Lord, I'm thankful for the cross. I'm thankful for the forgiveness of sin. I'm thankful for reconciliation with a righteous God. I'm thankful for the fruit of that, that there is peace in a world with no peace, that there is joy in a world that is robbed of its joy. Lord, we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray now as we begin to study your word, as we begin to think today, I pray that you would speak, that you would lead, that you would direct. I pray, Lord, that it would be a supernatural event, not a normal event, not a lecture, not the passing on of information, but again, the word of God, the speech of God, the truth of God made known today. I pray for the church that we would grow in it, that we would be shaped in it, we would be built in it, equipped in it. I pray for the lost today, those that would hear in this room, maybe in some other means, some other way. I pray that in the hearing of the truth of a gracious Savior, the Lamb of God, a risen Savior, a remedy for sin, that this very hour might be the hour of their salvation. Lord, I pray you remove any hindrance to their hearing. And again, that today they would receive you in victory. And it would point to the riches of your grace. Lord, we just tell you we love you. We praise you and we thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning we are in the midst of one sermon that is being delivered in seven parts. Maybe you know that, you've realized that. This morning is actually the fourth installment to this message. Tonight will be the fifth installment. I would encourage you, I, I would be here tonight. I wouldn't miss tonight as we have the fifth installment in this seven-part sermon. Our seven-part sermon is entitled, Troubled by Tulip, the Glorious Truth of God's Salvation. In it, we are looking at a spreading teaching, a growing teaching called Calvinism or Reformed theology are sometimes called the doctrines of grace. Now, I will tell you, and I'm very clear in this, I believe these are false teachings. I believe they are misled. I believe they are dangerous to the church today, especially in these days before Jesus is soon to come. I believe these are dangerous doctrines, dangerous truths for people to try and behold, to try to live out. I believe it's dangerous for the church today. You can go listen to the previous three messages. They are recorded. You can hear some of the reasons why. I believe they are, in fact, so dangerous that they needed to be addressed and warned of. And so that's the reason for this sermon series. That's the reason for these messages. Let me tell you, the, the good news of this is what I found. When you point out what is not true, you're afforded the opportunity to hold up what is true. And I want to tell you what an awesome thing it is to see how marvelous the gospel 
of Jesus Christ is. And so we should always be warned of what's going on. But the good news is we have a marvelous gospel in the truth of Jesus Christ. So far, in looking at this, we have found an acrostic. It is the word tulip. That word tulip is used to explain the Reformed or the Calvinistic understanding. It is a word they came up with. It is an acrostic they used to explain what they believe. And so this is not what I believe forced upon them. The word tulip, these understandings, come from them. Now, so far, we have looked at the T, total depravity. Sometimes it's called total inability. It follows that people, because of the fall of Adam, are totally unable to turn to God. They are unable to seek God. They do not possess that ability. Then we looked at the U, unconditional election. That was last Sunday morning. Unconditional election follows that God has chosen of no apparent or discernible distinction of man those that he will save. Before he even created one thing, he chooses those that he will save. In doing so, he also chooses those he will not save. Now, I'll tell you, that's a controversial statement to say it like that, but I don't see how that's anything but logical. If he chooses those that he will save, at the same time, he is choosing those he will not save. Now, I've heard this explained. He does not Choose those he will not save. Instead, here's what somebody said. He sadly passes them by. Well, I want you to think about that picture. Our gracious Savior, the Savior of the cross, before the foundation of the world, he doesn't not choose to save them. He just sadly passes them by. That is unconditional election. Then we looked at last Sunday night, the L. Limited atonement. It is a belief that Jesus did not die for all sinners, and he did not die for all sin. But instead, he died for a limited group, those that he elected before the foundation of the world, and for their sin alone. Very simply, you want to sum it up, there's a lot of ways to explain that, but very simply, Jesus did not die for everyone is that teaching. We saw Sunday night that one of the implications, we looked at several of the implications, one of the implications of that is because God has tied the expression of his love, because God himself, we didn't do it, God himself has tied the demonstration of his love to those that he dies for, Romans 5, 8, it means God does not love everyone as well. If he, if, he, if he doesn't die for everyone, if he doesn't die for their sin, and the expression of his love is expressed in his death, it follows then he doesn't love everyone as well. That is limited atonement. Well, today we move to the I in TULIP. It stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Now, Here's what I want us to see as we start again today. As we start this today, be sure and understand this. The truth will always stand. 
That's what I figured out all these years of preaching. The truth will always stand. When you examine it, it'll stand. When you test it, it'll stand. When you dig deeper into it, it will stand. We can be confident the truth of what God has said, the truth of God's word, the truth will always stand. Now, when you build on it, that means you won't start running into problems. Why? Because the foundation is there, because it is square, and because the truth will stand. And so if you have the truth, and you start to build your understanding upon that truth, it will also stand. Now, here's the deal. But you will have problems, you will have issues, when the foundation you're building upon is not the truth. In fact, if you have problems with the foundation they turn into many more problems. If you're a builder, you understand that. You got a problem at the start, you're going to have problems that plague you throughout the process. That's why they try to get the foundation right. A problem at the start becomes a problem all the way through. Well, the problems we are finding in the foundation of Tulip just keep leading us to more problems. I could go on and on. I could really preach about a month on this. I could show you all sorts of problems. But there's a flaw in the foundation. Because there's a problem in the foundation, it keeps leading us to more problems. Let me give you a couple examples. Tulip says that Jesus didn't die for everybody. God in his word says the expression of his love is tied in who he died to. So therefore, we can't say that God loves everybody. You know what the problem is? The problem is the Bible says God loves everybody. For God so loved the world. And so because of this problem, they have to start redefining love. And they actually have two definitions, if not three definitions. They'll have different expressions of the different definitions. And they'll say, well, God has a benevolent love. And God has a saving love. And there's different expressions, definitions of love. That's because there's a problem at the start that shows up as a problem further on. Let me give you another one. Tulip says we are born guilty of sin. The guilt of Adam is, is expressed in us. We are guilty, born guilty. The Bible, however, teaches that we are accountable for our sin. We are accountable for our rebellion. Yes, we're born with a sin nature, but our guilt comes from our sin. Because of that, because of that faulty teaching, they have to start with the idea of infant baptism. We'll break the sin spell off of them. We'll save them in this act. Because of that, they have to say infants that die in infancy, they are saved in mystery. We don't know how they're saved. They are guilty, but now they're saved. It's a mystery. John MacArthur says that. Or worse, some of them will say, well, if they die in their infancy, they perish. Problems arise and problems grow with a faulty foundation. Well, today... This idea, this false idea of irresistible grace really springs from and is necessary because of these other false ideas. And so here we're going to talk about uh, irresistible grace. Well, this issue springs up is a necessary thing for their understanding because of the false ideas of total inability and unconditional election and limited atonement. Irresistible grace is offered as a solution to one of the many growing problems of TULIP. That's what I believe. 
Okay, so let's look at it. Here we go. Irresistible grace is also called effectual grace. Some will call it that. Others may call it operative grace, grace that works. Irresistible grace, effectual grace, or operative grace. Irresistible grace follows that you can only choose to believe in Christ, the truth of the gospel, if God gives you the ability to believe. And if he gives you the ability to believe, you will believe and thus be saved. Let me say that again. Irresistible grace follows. You can only choose to believe in Christ, the truth of the gospel, if God gives you the ability to believe. And if he gives you the ability to believe, you will believe and you will be saved. It holds if you can or if you could believe on your own, if belief sprung out of you, if belief was your own, then you are contributing to your own salvation. If you can believe on your own, not as a mechanism of God, then you somehow have some part of your salvation. Therefore, you are stealing the glory due to God. Now, all the way through this, I see they're defending things that do not need defending. God is sovereign, yes. God is glorious, yes. His glory is awesome, yes. But they think, you know what, if you can believe, and belief is somehow of you, then you're stealing the glory of God. Salvation is totally of God, and faith, belief is not of us, not of people, even faith Belief is of God. Now, there's a word for that. It's monergism. It translates one movement. And so they say monergism is a word that, that explains salvation. And so there is one movement, and the movement is all of God. Very simply, sum it up like this. Salvation is effected on a person and has nothing to do with the person. Salvation is effected on a person and has nothing to do with the person. Okay, that's what they teach. How does that happen? What is, what is the process of that happening? Now, I want you to stay with me here. This is their idea of the gospel. This is what they believe the gospel to be. That is what they believe, irresistible grace, you can't believe unless God gives you the ability to believe. If he gives you the ability to believe, you will believe. How does that happen? What is that process? Now, here's their idea of the gospel. They believe. They have, first off, that people are dead in sin. That is true. We are spiritually dead in sin. They believe part of being dead in sin is they have no ability to seek God, no ability to respond to God. That's the first one, total inability. So because we are dead in our sin, because that includes the understanding we cannot seek or turn to God, and we have no ability to respond to God, here's their idea of the gospel. So therefore, God regenerates them, God makes them new, God does it in this act of irresistible grace. So that, now made new, 
now alive in Christ, they can respond and believe in Christ. They believe if God makes you new, you will believe. If God makes you new, you will be saved. Now, let me, let me quote some of them so you don't think I'm making this up or this is my understanding that's flawed. Let me, let me quote some of them. A guy named Lorraine Botner. He says, if a man is dead in sin, then nothing short of the supernatural life-giving power of the Holy Spirit will ever cause him to do that which is spiritually good. Now, listen to this. Regeneration, being made new. Regeneration is a sovereign gift of God graciously bestowed on those whom he has chosen. Now, let me explain it. We're going to see it several times. You are born again, and then you believe. That's the belief set. You're made new, you're born again, and then once you're born again, then you believe. John Piper, one of their most, I'm going to say their most influential preacher of the last 20 years, here's what he says. Faith is the evidence of new birth, not the cause of it. I want you to listen to that. Here's what he says. Faith is the evidence of new birth, not the cause of it. You're born again, then you believe. (laughs) Start to sound fishy? I didn't say that. All right, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, another one of their preachers, says this. We do not believe, listen to this, in order to be born again. We are born again in order to believe. That's what he actually says. We're born again, then we believe. That's the flow. Steve Lawson, he says this. No one just wakes up one morning and decides to believe in Jesus Christ. The reason he believes is because the Holy Spirit convicts him of sin, yes, draws him to Christ, yes, raises him to life, and then grants him faith. You are born again, and then you believe. Now, in our study, we keep seeing, and it really has become the pattern of our study, beliefs have implications. Beliefs have implications, meaning if you believe this is true, and you can pick the area, if you believe this is true, then there is an impact over here. There is a result over here. If you believe the oven is hot, you're not going to put your hand on the oven over here. Beliefs have implications. Well, this morning, let me show you some of the implications of embracing irresistible grace. Beliefs have implications, bear results. Let me show you some of the implications of the, if you were to embrace irresistible grace. Now, the first one is huge. Now, it's going to be unpopular if I say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Watch it. Listen to this. If irresistible grace is truth, is true, it destroys the message of the gospel and the key point of our gospel. Because, now listen to me, if irresistible grace is true, We are not saved by faith, we're saved by force. Now I want you to start thinking about that. You can't believe unless he gives you the ability to believe, but if he gives you the ability to believe, you will believe. Listen, something's changed there, something's different there, something's different than the gospel we know. 
You're no longer saved by faith. You're saved by force. In our verses in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and man, we could go deep and we could spend lots of hours. I'm trying to, to go fast. These are some of the main verses that they use for pushing these here in Ephesians 2, these teachings. You were dead in your sins. Verse 1, biblical truth. You walked according to the evil counsel of the world. Verse 2, that's true, biblical truth. You were driven in your evil lust. You were lost under the wrath of God. Children of wrath, verse 3. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, I want you to listen, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says, Our change, the change that occurs in salvation, it is to bring glory to God. It is to highlight and it is to exalt God's amazing grace. Here's what the verses say. We are made new. We have a changed heart. We have a changed position with God. In this, his love and his mercy and his grace are made known to us. Now, here's the question of the verses. Here's the question of the whole thing. When did that happen? How did that happen? We have a new heart. We have a new position. What, the change that's wrought in us is an is a, is a, is a exclamation of the glory of God. When did that happen? How does that happen? Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. For by grace, listen to me, for by grace you have been saved. We are saved in God's power alone, yes. We are saved in God's work alone, yes. And here in verse 8, we are saved in God's grace alone. It is only in the grace of God. Now watch this. It goes on and it says, through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The word for faith here in the original language, it simply means belief. It means to believe. To believe the truth of Jesus. That's what it means. We are saved by faith, by trust, by believing in the truth of Jesus. Now there's a key word here. It is the word through. Through faith. By grace, through faith. The word through in the original language translates because of, instrumented by. We're saved in God's grace because of God's grace, because of belief. We are saved in the grace of God. How? By placing our faith 
in Jesus. Friends, I want you to hear that today. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by placing our faith in the resurrected Savior, the Lamb of God, Jesus. There's not another way to be saved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it our work? No. Was it our effort? No. Is it our faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. The end of the verse says, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And we can have a long discussion here. Calvinists take this to mean faith is the gift of God. He gives you the faith. It is not of ourselves. Faith is not of ourselves. Well, I want you to look at the context. We're going to go fast. It's a lot deeper than this. As you read Ephesians, as you read this section of Ephesians, what is the discussion on? As you read the chapter, what is the discussion on? The discussion, listen to me, is on the grace of God. The discussion of Ephesians chapter 2, the, the, the discussion of the passage here is the grace of God given to us in Christ, demonstrated to us in our salvation, and received in faith. It is a discussion on grace. It is given to us in Christ. It is demonstrated in our salvation, and it is received in faith. That's why some excited scribe adds in in verse 5, by grace you've been saved. Grace is a gift of God. That's the very definition of it. Salvation is a gift of God. That is the expression of it. That's pretty involved. Let me try to make that plain. We are saved, made new, forgiven, given the righteousness of Christ. The Bible says given the Holy Spirit, sealed for the day of redemption in the moment of belief, not before. Do you understand that? We are saved in Belief, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not before. If it's before, that is a heresy. That, that is a distortion of the gospel. We are saved by faith and not by force. To change that changes the truth of faith and it changes the gospel. Second thing, second implication. Now listen, this is just as big. If irresistible grace is true, listen to this, then God is the source of non-belief and responsible for non-believers. If irresistible grace is true, God is the source of non-belief and responsible for non-believers. Now follow with me. If you cannot believe unless God makes you new and gives you the ability to believe, and God does not make you new, and therefore he does not give you the ability to believe, there's no way around it. He's ultimately responsible. Do you understand the logic of that? Last week we saw it was the same logic. If he chooses some, and he only chooses some, then by simple default, he does not choose others. This is the same logic. If irresistible grace is true, he gives it to some, but he doesn't give it to others. And so therefore, 
God is ultimately responsible for non-believers and non-belief. I believe that's an assault on God's character. Third impact. Third impact is this. Listen to this one. If irresistible grace is true, then the biblical command to evangelize is empty. And I'm going to tell you, this is, just, this is just simple logic. If irresistible grace is true, the biblical command to evangelize is empty. Let's think about that for a second. God says very clearly that we are to go and tell. Go ye therefore into all nations. Preach to all creation. God makes it very plain to us. We are to proclaim the good news. We are to preach the good news. He says we are to compel people to believe. Paul says we are to persuade people. The word of God says believe. Believe. That's the call of the word of God. Believe. These words are written that you might believe and in believing that you would have life. The call of scripture. Believe. Listen. Believe. The message of the church. Believe. Would he say that to people if it were not possible? Let's just be logical. Would he command us to tell people, to ask people, to compel people to believe if it's not possible? Let me give you an example. What if you were to go to Dallas? <laughs> I don't like the traffic, but what if you were to go to Dallas? You were to go to Love Field. You get to Dallas, you go to Love Field. And you were to buy a ticket, you're going to go to Florida. The hurricane's moved up north a little bit. It's safe again. And you want to spend a few days, you want to fish, you want to hang out, maybe relax. And so you're going to go to Dallas. You're going to buy a ticket on Southwest Airlines for a flight, for a seat to Florida. You get your ticket, you get on the plane, you walk down the aisle, you put your stuff overhead, you get it up there, you click the deal, you shut that, you get in your seat, you put on your seat belt. The plane takes off, the plane begins to fly, you're on your way. At some point, if you were to go to the cabin of the plane, if you were to go to the cockpit of the plane, the pilot says, hey, I see that y'all are here. You have it from here. Here's what he said. You've got it from here. I see you're here. We're in good hands. We, you've got it from here. And that pilot goes to the back of the plane. He gets some of those free peanuts. He puts on a parachute and jumps out the plane. He's got his peanuts, he got him a, a Coke, and he jumps off the plane, he parachutes off. And so you get in the seat of the plane, 30,000 feet, woo, we're headed to Florida, you're in the seat of the plane. You get in the seat of that plane, you know what you gotta do, you gotta fly the plane, you're gonna have to land the plane. Just two things, fly the plane and land the plane, two things. Can you do two things? Surely you can. Now here's the thing. If you do not do those things, you're gonna crash. If you don't fly the plane, you're not even going to get to Florida. You're going to crash. And if you can't land the plane, I don't care if you got to Florida, you're going to crash. You're going to crash. And I don't know if you know much about plane crashes. There's no gentle way to crash a plane. It's going to be bad. It's going to be tough. You're, you're going to perish. It's going to be tough. It's going to be bad. You got to fly the plane. You got to land the plane. If you don't land the plane, it's going to be terrible for you. But let me tell you why you're lucky. You're lucky because I'm with you. And I am gracious. And I am kind. 
And I love you. Oh, do I love you, my good friend. I love you. And so because I'm gracious, here's what I start doing. I start yelling, land the plane. Land the plane. Hey, I can't land the plane. Land the plane. I don't know how to land the plane. Land the plane. I'm not able to land the plane. Land the plane. What if I just start yelling, oh, go you therefore, land the plane. Somebody land the plane. Friend, you land the plane. Plane's going to crash. God doesn't know how to land the plane. That's a goofy example. Just as goofy as preaching the gospel to people without the ability to receive it. Lot meaner, lot sadder, steeped in hypocrisy. Irresistible grace, if true, makes empty the biblical command to evangelize. Now, they, here's what they say. They say, well, we do it because he commanded us to. We don't expect him to believe in most of them. But he told us to do it, so we're going to do it. They said, well, we do it because we don't know who might receive it. And maybe it just might be, we might just run into a pilot on this flight. That's why we do it. Listen to me. Be sure. It is an empty call to ask people to do something God has not given them the ability to do. It is a lie, and it's fraudulent. We're running out of time. This is going a little bit long. I got 10 more implications. I'm going to give you just one more. <laughs> Somebody said amen. <clears throat> I'm going to give you one more implication. This one offends me greatly. This one offends me greatly. Listen very carefully. If irresistible grace is true, listen to me, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus for sinners received in faith is not enough to be saved. And God's got to do something else, another act of grace, in order for you to be saved. You understand what I'm saying? If God's got to do another act of grace in order for you to be saved, then the promise of the gospel is not true. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's what the Bible says. If God's got to do something else, then the cross and the resurrection and the promise made in the gospel received in faith is not enough, and God's got to do another act of grace. I want you to be very sure today, people from the very start have tried to add to salvation. And they tried to add works of the law to salvation. They tried to add Judaism to salvation. They tried to add a deeper knowledge. Oh, if you just had a deeper knowledge, a secret knowledge. They've added all sorts of works to it, baptism to it. And listen to me, if irresistible grace is true, 
It is saying that the grace that God has shown in the death of his son Jesus and his resurrection and the preserving and the proclaiming of the gospel is not enough. It is saying the provision of Calvary is not enough. It is saying the promise of the gospel is not enough, but God has to awaken you, not as part of salvation, but before salvation. And I want to tell you that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the truth? <laughs> I got to preach all that to get to this. Here's worth coming for today. So what is the truth? You don't know what the truth is? Here's the truth. First off, let me give you a couple quick things. First off, nowhere... Does the Bible say God's grace is irresistible? You won't find that verse. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus comes. He's about to ride a donkey down into Jerusalem. They're going to kill him there in the city outside of the gates. Jesus, the Bible says, he wept over Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. And he says this, and you were un willing, you resisted, you wouldn't have it. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, it says, you who are stiff-necked, who are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just what your fathers did. You are resisting. So what is the truth? So what is the truth? Here's the truth. The truth is, God loves you. Listen, God loves you, and I don't have to redefine it, and I don't have to stumble over the words of it, and I don't have to clarify it in some way to make it seem all right. Listen to me, the truth of the Bible, the truth of God's word, God loves you. He loves you. He so loves you. But the truth is, in your sin, you have rebelled against him. You've rebelled against God. You've actually sinned against God. Because of that, you've earned a punishment. The Bible says that punishment is death. You are condemned in your sin. Listen, you are responsible before, in your sin. You are guilty before a holy God. That is the truth. Let me tell you what the truth is. The truth is, in that condition, you are hopelessly lost. In that condition, there is nothing you can do. You can't work it off. You can't do enough good things. You can't think enough good thoughts. You can't come to church enough. You can't wish it away. You can't regret it away. In that condition, listen to me, friend, in your sin, you are perishing in that sin. You have no hope at all in that sin. But the truth is this. God is gracious. God is gracious. I don't know how to get that message out any more clearly. I don't know how to make that more plain today. He is a God who saves. That's what he tells us. That's what he tells us in his own name. He wasn't lying when he said it. And so the truth is, in love and in grace unlimited, the truth is Jesus goes to the cross and there on the cross of Calvary, the greatest demonstration of love made known through grace, Jesus dies for all. 
Jesus pays the price for sin for every sinner. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Nothing is held back in the cross of Calvary. The truth is this. God wants us to be saved in that act of redemption. He wants us to be saved. And so in his grace, he tells us of the finished work of the cross. In his grace, yes, he convicts us in the Holy Spirit of our sin. In his grace, he gives us the word of reconciliation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In grace, he sends preacher and proclaimer all over to proclaim the grace of God. And listen to me, are you listening? The truth is this. If you will believe, whoever you are, whatever your sin, whatever your past, whatever your reputation, whatever your lineage is, God will save you if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to me, not in irresistible grace. That is too small. That is too petty. That is too little. But in his marvelous grace, his infinite grace, his massiveness of grace, his grace upon grace, whoever you are, call upon Jesus. He will save you. He'll save you. He will save you. Oh, what grace. Oh, what grace. He will save you. Now, that's good news. That's our gospel. Come to Jesus. He will save you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you. Dear Lord, we thank you. None of us worthy. All of us guilty. All of us condemned. All of us like sheep have turned and gone astray. Still, the grace of God, pointing to the love of God is this, but while we were yet sinners, Lord Jesus, you came and you died for us. You made a way for us, a remedy for us. So we praise you, Lord Jesus. We thank you. Lord, I pray for a couple of responses today. I pray for somebody here that doesn't know you, somebody that's hearing today that doesn't know you, that's outside of your, the knowledge of your grace, of your love. I pray, Lord, they turn to you today. The burden of their sin lifted away. Forgiven in Christ. Redeemed, restored, made new in Christ. Past gone in, in Christ. Lord, I pray if they're listening, if they're here, they have heard that any hindrance to that being grabbed, any hindrance to that being received would be removed. And I pray, Lord, that today they would trust you. Lord, I pray the second response is this, that we would do what the verse said, that we would bring much glory to you as we see your grace, that we would sing a little bit louder, we would walk a little bit taller, and we would preach and proclaim a little bit more often. There is a living Savior, and he's gracious, and he's kind to sinners. If you will turn to him, he'll save you. Lord, help us be that type of people. Not with our heads down, not downtrodden, not beaten up in a rough and cruel world, but agents, ambassadors of the grace of a loving God. Lord, help us to, to walk in it, to hold it high, to proclaim it. 
Lord, I pray now in this time of invitation that as you have spoken, that you would continue to speak. And I pray, Lord, that the result would bring much glory to you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We worship you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close our service with a time of response, as is only proper. This message is preached that we would respond. This word is reserved and preserved and, and proclaimed that we would believe and in believing have life. And so we're going to end our service with a time of response. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, I want to tell you there's hope today. Turn to him today. Maybe you'd say, I've heard this a million times. Maybe you'd say, I've, I've never heard this. Listen, there is a gracious Savior and he loves you. He's paid the price, the penalty for your sin. It is finished in him. If you'll profess trust in him, belief in him, claiming him as your Savior, turning from your sin, repenting, and turning to Jesus, he'll save you right now. If you need more information, you come, let's settle it. You want to talk about it further, you come, let's settle it. Maybe you want to come and say, you know what, not today, I trust Jesus. You proclaim it. We'll announce it to the church. Maybe you're here and you've made that decision, but you've never followed a believer's baptism. You come as well. What a great day of testimony, of celebration to be not as part of our salvation, but testifying to the Savior of that salvation. You come, we'll set a day to be a great day of celebration. Maybe you're looking for a church home and you've prayed about it. You believe God has led you here. You come as well. And together we'll preach his gospel. We'll uphold his good gospel, his good news until he comes again. Maybe you want to come pray at an altar. Maybe you want to come pray with me. We're not in a hurry to get anywhere. Truly the most important time of this hour, the chance to respond to the truth of, of God's word. As we stand and sing, if God is speaking to you, if he's spoken to you, if you have a decision to make, you step out. You come on. I'll meet you here.